0: We are in. well Actually, today is bittersweet because today we conclude a sermon series that we have been in since November 25th of 2018. Now, I am probably one of the most attention deficit hyperactive disorder individuals in this building, and so for me to do anything for two and a half years is pretty remarkable. Um, but uh, we really felt like that there was. A, a, uh, you know, all of us, you know, we, tr- we try to read our Bible. I mean, January, don't you like it? I'm going to read the Bible all the way through. And we start, and we're like, Genesis, yeah, it's awesome, it's action-packed. And God said, light, bam, and God said, birds, boom, and God said, man, you know, and, and woman, and, and it's action-packed. And then we start to get into some really weird stories. And then we start to, and we're like, but no, we power through. And we get into Exodus, and it's still pretty action-packed. And then Exodus ends, and then Leviticus starts. And we're like, why? Why did I make this commitment to read it all the way through? Can I skip parts? Jesus, is it okay? And and then we power through Leviticus, and we're thinking there's just so much blood. And then we get to Numbers, and we... It it really doesn't get, I mean, I hate to say this, but it doesn't get any more interesting. It, it becomes a bit of a trudge in certain parts of the Bible. And he's not going to strike me. We've had this conversation before. Some parts of the Bible are just harder to read than others. First of all, because we're so far removed from the culture. We don't, you didn't bring a goat with you today to church. Um, and so we don't, we're far removed from the requirements of that culture. And then we get to Deuteronomy, and we think, all right, we're on the downhill slope, And what is Deuteronomy? The word Deuteronomy means second telling. So you get to hear the story all over again. And you're like, I feel like I had it the first time. But no, Moses says, now sit out, settle down, and let's tell the story again. And, and so we really start, I don't know how you're doing in your Bible reading for this year, but sometimes we we really quit before we even get into the New Testament, and the New Testament is where we see about the life of Christ, so we decided to take the life of Christ chronologically and walk with Jesus as best as we possibly could in as many of the stories as we could and so uh it was sixty five sermons in the in His Steps series and the Sermon on the Mount series, and now we have been in the final steps, which was from Uh, Palm Sunday, all the way to where we find ourselves now at the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's 18 sermons. It's a lot of sermons. You've powered through. Good for you. Um, You didn't quit. Uh, It's a journey that's taken us through the four Gospels and going where he went, witnessing his miracles, and really trying to throw ourselves into the tension that the disciples must have felt. And I hope this series has been beneficial for you, as beneficial for you as it has been for me, uh, because I've seen Christ in a new and fresh way, really digging into those stories where you read them, but you often miss things that are in the original languages. And, uh, and I, like, I like to consider, I like to think of it this way, that when you wrestle with God, you come away with a limp. And it's not intended to hurt you, but it is intended to change you. That when we wrestle with God, when we dig into his word, it should change us. It should affect us. It should change the way we walk, the way we think, the way we behave. And uh, we see a fresh revelation of his character, his heart, his way. And so today we conclude this series by looking at the final thing Jesus did on earth. And we'll see what he is currently doing in heaven. Is he just up there watching Netflix and eating, you know, bonbons? No, he's very busy in heaven. And we're going to look at the four things that he's currently doing right now. So we're going to begin today. uh, The message is called What the Ascension Means. So look at Acts chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look on the screen with us. Acts chapter 1. We're looking at verses 6 through 11. This story is is found in the Gospels of Mark and Luke and here in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. Matthew and John, who were eyewitnesses to this event, do not include this event in their gospel accounts for whatever reason. But these men, these 11 disciples, witnessed some remarkable things that, uh, that Jesus did as they followed him around the countryside. They were eyewitnesses to him feeding the multitudes with a kid's lunchbox. They saw him give sight to the blind. They, they saw him give hearing to the deaf, strength to the lame, and life to the dead, where he walked up to a coffin and touched it, and the dead boy sat up. When he walked up to uh, Lazarus's tomb and just called his name Lazarus, come out and Lazarus comes climbing up the steps of the tomb out alive after being dead for four days. They heard him teach the way of God for three years. The teachings, this deep teachings where Jesus says, you've heard it said, blah, blah, blah. But I tell you, yada, yada, yada. And so he takes the things that they've heard all their lives. And he says, look, You guys are are missing the mark. You're obeying the letter of the law, but you're violating the spirit of the law. They witnessed him laugh. They witnessed him pray and rebuke and love and weep. And then they saw him die a horrific death on the cross, only to be resurrected three days later. Now we're like, why didn't you believe he was going to rise from the dead? Because has anybody ever done that before? Has anybody ever died on a cross? A horrific death like that? Have we ever executed somebody in Texas and four days, three days later they came back to life? No. Dead people typically stay dead unless Jesus is around. Then all bets are off. But they watched him die this horrific death. And so when Thomas wasn't in the room, when Jesus appeared, and so he didn't believe. And we got to give the guy, cut him a little bit of slack. Because we wouldn't either. He saw him die. Now to say that those three years that the disciples spent with Jesus was transformational is a dramatic understatement. It changed everything. It changed changed their perspective on God. It changed uh, their perspective on how God works and what he does. And that truth was not some abstract concept, but it was actually a person who walked among them. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. They stood there and they watched him do what no one had done before. They watched him ascend to heaven. He was no longer going to walk with them. He was no longer going to protect them, no longer going to teach them, no longer going to provide fish sandwiches on the countryside for them. Not the way that he had done. His ministry had changed to equip them to step out and minister to others the way he had ministered to them. Now that Christ had ascended into heaven, he took a different position. So we're going to look at four ways the ascended Christ is ministering right now. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. It says, Mark's version of the uh, ascension, he says, this is all you get, this is all the information Mark provides. This huge event, I mean, and seriously, when have you ever heard a sermon on the ascension? I don't think I had ever heard a sermon on the ascension. But in, in Orthodox and Catholic groups, it's a feast day like they're in, in some really strong Orthodox and, and Catholic communities, businesses are closed on the Feast of the Ascension. It's a, huge, it's a huge deal. And we sometimes never hear a sermon about it in our entire lives. Well, you're hearing one now. Mark says, 1619, So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So the first picture we get of Jesus Christ is that Christ is sitting as the righteous judge. Christ is sitting in your bulletins. You've got a little handout sheet. You can fill in some blanks if you want to. Christ is sitting as the righteous judge. When I was a kid, I used to watch the People's Court. You remember the People's Court? I'm not talking about the new, newfangled, fancy People's Court. I'm talking of the old school People's Court. Judge Joe Wapner. It's classic. I actually YouTubed the theme music because I remembered it was memorable, but I just couldn't remember how it went. You can go to YouTube and you can find the People's Court theme song. It's really four to five minutes of your time, I think, well spent. do 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 do, do. We didn't have Disney Plus when I was a kid. We didn't have Cartoon Network. And even if we did, my parents would not let me watch that. I had to watch whatever my parents were watching. And my dad's, as an aside, my dad's favorite show, you're never going to guess this, sitting around the dinner table, we had this... And this is going to date me. I'm not as old as this seems, but my parents were cheap. We had this old black and white television in our kitchen. Now we had color TVs everywhere else, and we had cable too. But we had this small. It was like a four-inch screen TV, and and ninety percent of the TV really was extra. It was incredibly heavy. It was it was about the size of these old school v- VCRs, really old ones and a four-inch screen, and at the dinner table at five o'clock every day on the dot, we watched my father's favorite show, Father Knows Best. My dad loved that show. And he told me why he loved that show. He said, some of these other shows make dad seem like idiots. But Father Knows Best is not that kind of a show. It's a good show. Okay, so that was all free. So my mother would watch Judge Joe Wapner the People's Court. And the People's Court when he when Judge Wapner walked into the courtroom he was there to settle small claims disputes in the state of California it had to be a lawsuit below $1500 at that time. And what they would do is they would contact people who were suing each other over there was one episode I actually watched it on YouTube. This guy was suing an owner of a pizza place For a $3 piece of pizza. $3. He wasn't even claiming emotional damage or stress. He just wanted his $3 back because they promised him a a thick slice of chicken pizza. And he got a thin slice of chicken pizza. And he refused it. But they wouldn't give him his money back. I don't know why. Anyway. So, Judge Wapner would grill the plaintiff. He grilled the defendant. He was trying to tell who was giving them the truth and, 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 and whose side was the law on in this situation. But when Judge Wapner walked into the room, the first thing he did was sit down. Judges sit, they sit in judgment. If a judge stands, and pounds the gavel, you are going to jail. Because they sit, typically. When Pilate pronounced the judgment over Jesus Christ in John chapter 19, what did Pilate do? He sat in the judgment seat. When Jesus was arrested and tried by the religious leaders, Jesus told them, he said, you're going to see me again. And when you see me again, I will be seated at the right hand of God. Why? because he would judge them for their actions for their refusal to accept the messiah for their condemnation of an innocent man the most innocent man in the history of the world mark's gospel gives us our that first glimpse of christ's heavenly ministry that he is the righteous judge psalm 711 says that god is a righteous judge it tells us that explicitly Psalm 9, 7 through 8, it says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. What is the purpose of His throne? For justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. What does this mean? Well, it means that whenever Jesus makes a judgment, He always makes the right decision. You see, earthly judges can be swayed by bribes, by smooth-talking liars, by politics, or by their own corrupted hearts. But Jesus cannot be swayed. His throne is established to pursue the cause of justice and righteousness. When he makes a decision, when he renders a judgment, it is always the right one. He does not show favoritism. He does not accept bribes. He does not overlook the wicked deeds of someone. Now maybe you've been wronged by somebody. Maybe somebody offended you, hurt you, wounded you, stole a $3 piece of pizza from you, or betrayed you. If you are in Christ, you don't need to worry about retribution or revenge. When you leave that up to Christ, that situation will always be judged by him rightly. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 12, 19. He counsels the church in Rome. He says, Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When you take retribution or revenge on somebody... You're essentially telling God, you weren't going to do anything about it. You weren't going to handle this situation the right way. I can do a better job of being a judge than you can. You were just sitting on your hands. So I took matters into my own hands. Don't do that. Christ is sitting in judgment, so let him judge the way only he knows best. You can turn to Acts chapter 7 for our next picture of Christ's current ministry. There was a man named Stephen who served the church in its early years. He helped with ministry to the widows. He was a powerful minister of the gospel and God used him to perform signs and wonders, demonstrating the power of God. Well, Jews recognized his message and they were jealous of his increased influence. So they seized him and brought false witnesses against him to for him to be condemned. They examined him, and they could not find any real fault with him other than being a follower of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This young man named Saul later becomes the Apostle Paul when he accepts Jesus Christ. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. The second picture we see, Of Jesus. The first is that Christ is sitting in judgment. The second is Christ is standing in my defense. Christ moved from a seated position to a standing position when Peter, I'm sorry, when Stephen was being uh, accused and stoned. Stephen stood up to make a defense of Christ among those who would try to silence him. And since Stephen stood up for Christ as he was being stoned to death, Jesus Christ stood up for Stephen. It's a powerful picture. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 that persecution would come. He prophesied that they would be flogged in the synagogues. They would be dragged before government leaders. And he told them not to be worried about anything that they would say in those moments, but that the Holy Spirit would speak through them. Jesus said in Matthew 10, You will be hated for my name's sake. That word hate doesn't mean disliked. We're, We're disliked by people for any number of reasons. It means to detest. It's a strong word. It has the connotation that they would be pursued with hatred by those who sought to silence them. Perhaps there is something that you detest. Maybe it's a sports team from a rival town that always manages to knock out the Houston Rockets with their stupid San Antonio Spurs. We just can't get into the playoffs, whatever it may be. Maybe it's a bad habit that your spouse or your teenager does, and you detest it. It drives you crazy. They take their socks off. And the basket is right here, but the sock is on the floor right here. And the sock just can't manage to make it into the basket. And when they throw it and yell, Kobe! And they still miss it, they don't go pick it up. What is wrong with these people? You have, a, there's got to be something that just drives you crazy. Maybe it's a food that everybody in everybody else in the house loves. And you absolutely would love to rid the world of it. That level of hatred where you would be willing to chase down somebody who has a Tom Brady jersey on just so you can tell them what you think of anybody who's bold enough to wear something crazy like that, that's the kind of pursuit that the disciples were told to expect. People will chase you down to come after you. In the midst of this statement, surely it was giving disciples some pause as to their chosen profession from here on out. Wait, no, people aren't going to like us? We're not going to be super popular? Oh, we are going to be super popular, but only by those people trying to kill us. Jesus, in the midst of that, realization. He gives them a promise. It's Matthew ten thirty two through 33. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. That word confess in some translations or acknowledge here in the ESV. It's a Greek word homologeo, Homo means same, logeo means word. So when we say about Jesus the same words that the scripture says about Jesus, that he is the son of God, then Jesus will confess, he will acknowledge, he he will say the same words over us to the father, that we are sons and daughters of God as well. So when we stand up for Jesus, Jesus stands up for us. So keeping with that courtroom theme, you can kind of think of it this way. Jesus is the righteous judge, but he is also our faithful defense attorney. When he hears an accusation against us, he stands to our defense. I object. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our temptations. He knows our humanity. And he can defend us better than anyone else can. The third picture we see in Scripture, is that Christ is praying in my weakness. Christ is praying in my weakness. Two times in the New Testament, the Bible portrays the image of Jesus making intercession on our behalf. Now, to intercede is the act of intervening on behalf of another. It's placing yourself in the gap between a person and the judgment against them. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, we could easily spend an hour just unpacking that one sentence. He is able to save to the uttermost to save completely and perfectly those who approach and draw near to God. He doesn't save some people halfway. He is able to save to the uttermost. And because Jesus always, at all times, ever lives, exists, his very breath is the intercession for you on your behalf. Jesus is praying for you. He is your prayer partner. Could you possibly imagine a better prayer partner in the entire universe than Jesus Christ himself? When somebody comes up to you and says, hey, man, you're a Christian, right? You're like, yeah. And they say, would you pray for my mom? She's facing the surgery. Oh, man, I'll totally pray. We go home, we totally forget. Great thing about Jesus, he doesn't forget. He doesn't forget. He lives to make intercession on your behalf. He is the greatest prayer partner we could ever imagine or ever need. He can sympathize with our weakness. Hebrews 4:15. It says for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands better than anyone else, what it is like to be pulled in two different directions. To want to do what the Spirit is desiring while trying not to do what our flesh is desiring. He can sympathize with our humanity because He was tempted as we are, yet He did not sin. Because He can sympathize, we see Jesus over and over in the Gospels being drawn To people who were in their moments of weakness. The lame man whose faith was in this superstition. You remember the story, he's laying by this pool and he says, I don't have anybody to trouble the water. There's a superstition that an angel comes down once every so often and touches the water, and and whoever rolls into the water first gets healed. And I assume that's true. Because if it's not true, the pool is littered with drowned bodies. Who's going to do that the second time? If it doesn't work the first time, who's volunteering? Push me in, man. The the angels troubled the water. What What if you're racing to get in the water? These are things that keep me up late at night, folks. What if you're really trying to get in? And you think you got in there first, but somebody on the other side of the pool got in there before you, and you're, you know, you're, anyway, all right these are these are things that i I think about I'm like, and but the great thing about it is that Jesus shows up, and it doesn't matter. He can sympathize with our weakness and and our our misunderstandings and our fears. The woman who was caught in the act of adultery, the five time divorced woman at the well who was living with the man who wasn't her husband, the fearful father of a demon possessed boy who says, I believe." Uh, help my unbelief. He understands, and he's interceding for you. He even told Peter, P- "Peter, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail." The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is praying for you that when temptation comes your way, you will not give in to it, but be able to stand strong in His. Mighty power. Paul gave us an incredibly powerful perspective on this. It's in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. It's kind of a long section, but it's really good. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We regard it as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, what things? The things he just mentioned. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor, nor angels, nor rulers, excuse me, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is that even possible? Because Jesus is praying for you. Because Jesus is interceding for you in your times of weakness. And because he is praying for you, you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you and who is interceding on your behalf. Because of that fact, nothing in all of creation can separate you from God's love that is found embodied in Christ Jesus himself. For the final picture of Christ's ministry to his people, we look to the Old Testament. It's a scripture that it's easy to skip over and miss. We go back and look at it. It's Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3:17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, first, let's let's just break this verse down real quick first this verse prophesied that god himself would walk among them and be in the middle of them which was clearly fulfilled when christ was born on this earth zephaniah called the lord a mighty one who will save mighty one means strong brave valiant man and then he says who will save now in hebrew that's the word yesha where we get the word Yeshua, where we get the English word Jesus. So this Jesus, this Savior, this Deliverer will rejoice. He will display absolute joy over you, rejoicing with pleasure in His heart. He will quiet you, still your heart. He will, and literally translated, He will engrave peace into your heart. By his unfailing and perfect love, he will rejoice. He will dance around you with loud singing and joyful shouts. With these Hebrew concepts, we could easily read the scripture this way God himself will walk among you, a mighty one, Yeshua, Jesus, the Savior. He will display complete joy out of his heart's rejoicing, he will still your f- fearful heart. When he engraves the word peace over you through his unending and unfailing love, he will rejoice with dancing as he sings loudly over you. The fourth picture we see is that Christ is singing to calm my fears. What a wild concept! Christ is singing to calm my fears. My dad was a musician and a songwriter, and so when we were little, when my brother and I were little, Dad wrote a song for each of us. And periodically, he'd be sitting at the piano, and we'd say, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, uh, sing that song you wrote for me. And he'd get a big smile across his face, and and, uh, he'd break out on the familiar tune, and he would sing my song. Let me see if I can do this. (laughs) It's not a complicated song. Um, But it would go, um, Jason, Jason, he's our baby boy. He has brought a lot of happiness. He's brought a lot of joy. He's the last child we will have forevermore. Now, a lot of you didn't know my dad. But now you can feel like you do a little bit. That last line was a mixture of humor and absolute seriousness. Two children was his max. Matter of fact, when I gave him grandchildren, he preferred to take them just one at a time. Because two or more was a bit of a stretch. Now, it also is connected to my family's history. You see, my mother had a very difficult time with pregnancy. She had two miscarriages, and then she gave birth to my brother. God spoke to her that she would have a second child. And so when she got pregnant for the fourth time, it ended in a miscarriage. When she got pregnant for a fifth time, it ended in a miscarriage. Her doctor demanded that she stop. He said, this is killing you. You are at a high risk, and it is a danger not only to you, but to any child you carry. Stop getting pregnant. To which she replied, Doc, you don't understand. I have a word from God, and I will have two children. I will bring a second child into this world even if it kills me. So she became pregnant for a sixth time. and Nine months later, gave birth to a nine-pound, four-ounce baby boy named Jason, who was the last child they would have forevermore. Now, I know the doctor was speaking with what he thought was her best interest in mind. But my mother had a word from God. And if she had listened to that rational advice, Mackenzie would not exist. Micah would not exist. Joshua would not exist. Samuel would not exist. And Gideon would not exist. And in case you don't know me and you're a newcomer, I have five children. All five of them would not exist. I would not be your pastor. I would not be standing here today. My, her, her faith in God's word created five new branches of the Fraser family tree. And But as my dad would sing, I would definitely be his last. Because apparently my brother and I fought so much that the idea of bringing a third child into this family was absolutely beyond his comprehension. He could not handle it. Um, He he felt like he was outnumbered. But I'm very grateful for a mother who not only had a word from the Lord, but stood on that word from God. Regardless of well-intentioned advice, When God gives you a word from him, he needs nothing from you other than just obedience and walking in that word. He doesn't expect you to do the impossible. If you could do the impossible, you would have already done it by now. He wouldn't have asked you to step out on faith if it's something that you could do. He gives you a word to trust him so that when it happens, he gets all the glory. Time and again, he led the Israelites into battles. And he would say, uh, they would say, Do we attack? And he would say, Yes, attack him and destroy him. They attack him and destroy him. And the next time, Lord, do we attack? No. Just hang out. The story of Gideon, this, this reluctant leader. He didn't want to lead. And by the time he amassed an army, God says, "You got too many people. You got too many people. You got too many people. Over and over and over, cutting it down until only three hundred men were left. Three hundred men going up against an army of one hundred and twenty thousand men. And the reason is because numbers don't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything to God. God will put God put Gideon in an impossible situation." 300 men. And they look out over this valley, littered with men, 120,000 strong army. And God was like, you don't even need to worry about. All you got to do is make a racket. I'll, I'll route the army for you. And God did that over and over and over. We see in the scripture, people, if they're willing to stand on the word of the Lord, God will do incredible things through them. Worship team, come on up. Would you please stand with me this morning? When my kids were little, oh, kids, they get upset. And they get frustrated. They get sad. Gideon, he'll tell you, he'll crawl up in your lap, I'm sad. I want to be happy again. And I'm like, okay, well and as my wife will tell him you know you can get glad in the same pants you got sad in you know it's a choice <clears throat> but they get upset they and they they they're still learning how to communicate their emotions they're still learning how to process their emotions and how to communicate them and so sometimes they are afraid and and so they would be sick they would be hurting whatever And they would just crawl up into my lap. And they'd want to cuddle with me. So I would sing over them. I would sing over them when they were in the womb so that they would recognize my voice. I sang over them when they were little. My song would quiet their fears. It would settle them down. And they knew that as long as they were in my arms... No harm would come to them. I would protect them. My presence in their life would calm all of their fears. And sometimes they'd look up at me and they'd say, but Daddy, what about... No. I would look down and I would speak tenderly to them and I would sing. And sometimes they would close their eyes. And all the fear, and you can watch all the fear, all the frustration, all the uncertainty just begins to melt away. Their face would relax. They would be at perfect peace. Sometimes I would take my finger and I would just trace around their face to calm them down. And you could see their, their worried little uh what is this? What what forehead, yes, thank you. Look, I didn't I didn't take anatomy in school. I took religion, okay? Yeah, their forehead, thank you. They have a wrinkled forehead, and they would, they're so worried, and their forehead would be so wrinkled. And then they would calm down. I kept thinking, eyebrow—that's not right. Oh my gosh, so we've ruined this moment. But sometimes I would—I would take my finger and I would trace their face, and I would trace—I would write the word "love." I would sometimes they were facing away from me, and I would—I would, I would uh, trace on their back, "I love you," and I'd say, "What does that spell?" I—I I would essentially do what Christ said that he, or the prophet said that Christ would do, I would engrave a word over them. Christ is engraving the word peace over your heart through His unfailing love. What does the ascension mean? The ascension did not mean the end of Christ's ministry. It meant the transition into a new ministry. A ministry of sitting down as the righteous judge. A ministry of standing up in our defense. A ministry of praying for us in our weaknesses and a ministry of singing over us to calm our fears. So what is our response to so great a Savior? I believe it is found in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. Now you have to know David didn't write this in the good times. He writes these things in response to what's going on in his life. So I will bless the Lord at all times, not just in the good times, not just in the times you got lots of money in the bank and everything's going great for you at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That means I'm not going to let anything that's not praiseworthy be in my mouth. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. That if I'm going to boast in something, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be my efforts. It's not going to be my abilities. My boasting will be in look what the Lord has done. He continues. He says, let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Do you know what happens when you take a magnifying glass to something? You make it larger, you make it bigger, you make it more visible, more evident, more present. And he says, Folks, magnify the Lord with me. Let's make him bigger. Let's make his fame, his glory bigger than our fame and our glory. Let's let him be the biggest thing. If anybody is worthy to be praised, it's not us, it's him. Let's exalt his name together. So let's do that. Let's magnify Jesus Christ today. Let's enlarge the place that he holds in our hearts. Let's exalt him and bless him and elevate him. Let's Raise the praise of His name to the highest heavens in glory and majesty. Will you do that with us this morning? Let's, let let us We're going to sing the song we sang earlier, the new song. Hopefully you got it because the chorus is the key. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Let's sing that song uh, together this morning. Let that be our heart's cry. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. There's no one beside you, Lord. There's no one else that's worthy to be praised. No one else that's worthy to be exalted. You alone are God. You alone are worthy to be praised. Father, we thank you that when Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens, he didn't sit down and take the day off. He continued his work. He continued his ministry. And he is continually ministering to us, praying for us, singing over us, ministering to His people in the ways that they need Him the most. We thank You, Lord, that You are a very present help in troubled times. And that regardless of what we face this next week, this next month, this next year, that it's not something that will take You by surprise. You declare the end from the beginning. You already know what will happen. You have accounted for it and prepared for it. So, Father, we thank you that we can trust our future to the one who holds the future in his hands. You hold our very lives in your hands. We thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. For those that are giving the offering, Lord, as we uh, conclude our service, God, we thank you for blessing them. God, you've called us to bless so that we can be a blessing to others. And Father, we thank you that you are blessing us so that we can continue the work of the ministry here in this area. So, Father, those that give, we pray, God, that you would bless them and keep them. And thank you, Lord. And for those that, uh, that have a heart to give and, and don't have the ability, Lord, that you would increase what they have. We thank you, Lord, for generous hearts. And thank you, God, for what you're doing in this community to reach it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be magnified in everything that we do today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.